Good morning. This is my postponed lesson 11 that was uh, supposed to come a couple of weeks ago and providentially it was delayed. I must tell you it has been uh, revised several times and uh, during the night I, I got up out of bed. I know I should have one of those recorders right beside the bed but I, this, this text has been working on me and I kept getting up and writing something down because I knew it would be gone in the morning if I didn't do that. And, and that went on for several uh, events uh, during the night and uh, I persist at making changes. I, I feel a little bit like J. Vernon McGee in this regard. If you ever remember listening to him and he would say when he came to a new book of the Bible, now this is the most important book of the Bible. You know, every single book, every single text, you know, that was the big one for him. This really is, in my opinion, this is a huge text in terms of its implications. And as you can see, I've called it, connecting the dots, a defense of expository preaching. When uh, last October, Haddon Robinson was in, uh, in town at Dallas and he was uh, speaking at the seminary, and they had a, a luncheon uh, for some of the uh, former graduates, and uh, it was a question and answer time. And one of the questions that was asked Dr. Robinson was this, what do you see as the future for expository preaching? He hesitated a moment and he said, not good. That's a terrifying thing. Here's a man who has spent his whole life doing that, and, and I've spent most of mine, at least in ministry, trying to do the same thing, and to be told that somehow expository preaching is, is at least amongst evangelicals in America, is on its way out. And I fear that he's right. And so if I sound like I'm standing on a soapbox and, and whatever, I probably am. But I have to tell you, I think this text speaks loudly to us. And we need to listen very carefully because expository preaching is about connecting the dots. And this text is about our disciples failing to connect the dots and our Lord's rebuke of them for it. Not so much here in chapter 6 as you'll find later in chapter 8. Now let's talk about some of the backdrop for this event, these two events that are placed side by side, the feeding of the 5,000 and the uh, walking of our Lord Jesus on the water. This is preceded by the death of John the Baptist and that word uh, reaching uh, the Lord Jesus and the disciples. It's also preceded by our Lord sending out the 12 apostles so that they could heal and preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. And they have just come back from that mission trip, as it were, and they have reported to our Lord Jesus all the stuff that was going on. And, uh, and then... Uh, this event takes place. Notice that the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the very few events that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. I take it, therefore, that this is a very significant event. Now, that's not true of the feeding of the 4,000. That's going to be left out of Luke and, and, uh, and, and I think John as well, uh, unless my memory has just failed me on the spot. So this is a very important event, 
And uh, we need to think about the unique contributions that are made by each one of the Gospels. In Matthew, who has a fairly uh, substantial account of this, it's interesting that Matthew describes the Lord Jesus as having compassion on the crowds and he healed them. In Mark, it'll say he had compassion on the crowds and he taught them. In Luke, it says he healed them and he taught them. Uh, but here in Matthew, he healed them. Now, I admit that I like to mentally imagine what that scene looks like. So if you've got the Sea of Galilee and, and a fairly good distance, I'm not sure exactly how many miles, but let's say five, six, seven miles across at that, at that point. And, and so if you were taking a straight line, you would have that many miles to go. If you went around the northern rim of the lake, in other words, you went by shore, then you get yourself a fairly good walk. Wouldn't you agree? Fairly good walk. If they went to a deserted wilderness place and Jesus had compassion on the crowds by healing many of them, how did they get there to be healed? And, and so I got to admit, I play myself a little YouTube movie. And, and, and now think about this. 5,000 men plus women and children, whatever that number equals. And a fair number of those people are sick. Can you imagine the stretchers and, and the scene of people who are lame, who are blind? I just can't even imagine what that looked like to see all those people in their desperation going to be where Jesus is in the hope that Jesus might heal them. Matthew puts the spotlight that on, on, on that for me. And it's Matthew alone that has Peter walking on the water. I'm sorry, I had to say it, not for long. You know, that's the glub, glub, Lord save me text. I don't have time but I want to suggest to you, as you think about this text and read it and especially hear sermons on it, I don't think Peter is being commended for getting out of the boat. Peter got out of the boat and the winds didn't stop. Peter got out of the boat and he sank and was rebuked for his lack of faith. It's when Jesus got in the boat that the others worshipped Jesus. The storm stopped, they worshipped Jesus and said, you are the Son of God. So... All those sermons about if you want to serve God, get out of the boat. Maybe some people need to stay in the boat. And Jesus needs to be in the boat rather than us being out lapping away in the waves. Okay, that's my mini sermon on Matthew. The Gospel of Luke. The shortest account. Interesting that Luke just doesn't go in, in great depth. He goes immediately after the feeding of the 5,000 to the great confession. But he does not deal with the feeding of the 4,000 or the walking on water. He links the healing and the teaching of our Lord. And he indicates that the town to which they go, or at least the nearby town, is Bethsaida, which just happens to be the hometown of Philip. And in John's gospel, it's Philip that Jesus is going to spot and say, uh, Philip, what do you think we ought to do about this? It's sort of like saying, you know this town, <laughs> any McDonald's around? I don't think so. John's gospel, the most extensive gospel account. In verse 4 of chapter 6, 
he tells us that Passover is near. Now, chapter 7, it'll be the Feast of Tabernacles that is near. But that means that people should be thinking about the Exodus and the first Passover, does it not? That that ought to be something that's very clear in, in people's minds. Interestingly, too, it's in the Gospel of John that we read of the way in which the unbelievers who forsook Jesus, late in chapter 6, and said, this is hard to hear, we're not going to listen anymore, and they go their way. It's those people who connect the dots enough to link Jesus with Moses, to link bread with bread, give us this bread forevermore. Moses was a great one. He gave us bread. What will you do that's better than that? That's the challenge that's put forth in the Gospel of John. And it's the people who, when they have the feeding of the 5,000, they conclude that Jesus is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, the one who was like Moses, who has been foretold. And it's John who tells us the people would have forcibly made him their king had they had the opportunity to do so. Here's the two things I want you to really notice. Jesus intentionally raised the issue of the feeding of the 5,000 with Philip. Everywhere else, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what you have is the disciples late in the day. They're saying to Jesus, it's late, Lord. There's no restaurants around here. Send these guys home and uh, let them find food for themselves. In John's Gospel... It's as the crowd is making its way toward Jesus. In other words, it's early in the day. And Jesus says to Philip, Hey, Philip, what do you think we ought to do about this? These people are hungry. They're going to be really hungry by the end of the day. What do you think we should do about that? And uh, here's my solution. I think that one of the things our Lord Jesus wants to be very clear in the minds of the disciples is this situation is impossible. He drops the issue of feeding the crowd on the disciples early in the day. And all day long the disciples are saying, what are we going to do about that? Why doesn't he send them home? So it's late in the day. I think there's a note of irritation. I'll get to that in a minute. A note of irritation in the voices of the disciples. But Jesus has put this thing before them and they've got to simmer in the juices. of Jesus is asking us what to do about this crowd. What does he think we're supposed to do? My personal opinion is they put the matter off until it is so late that the only conceivable solution is send them away. It's late. Haven't eaten? Just send them off. I think the Lord Jesus sets that scene up. And by the way, you remember it says, he said this knowing what he was to do because he's putting them to the test. Okay. Feeding of the 5,000 in Mark. Mark tells us, and really Mark alone, that not only did they not have any rest because people were coming and going so much, he says they meaning the disciples, did not even have a chance to eat. <laughs> so when you read this thing about, you know, the disciples saying to Jesus, hey, send these people home, you know, let them find some food. Their stomachs are growling. Their stomachs. 
the disciples, you know, they've got some interest in this thing. And it's a long, hard day for them. And they haven't eaten it. And what really tickles me, i got to admit, this is, this is probably a reflection on my lack of spirituality. But I don't think the disciples ate first. Do you? I think they were snacking out of the 12 baskets myself. I don't think, I don't think they were eating first because Jesus has that food, creates the food, hands it to his disciples, and they pass it out. And, and so I suspect that probably had a little verbal or, or mental lesson for the disciples too, if they were to have gotten it. So they go to a wilderness place. Now, in, 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 uh, in Mark's gospel, it's not so much the focus on Bethsaida. It's the focus on this wilderness place. There isn't anybody there. There's no food there. You know, it's just off in the boonies. The crowds go ahead by land. Jesus has compassion, and he teaches the people many things. The other Gospels make it clear he teaches them about the kingdom. So Jesus is speaking to these people who are like sheep without a shepherd, we're told, and he teaches them many things. All right, the disciples' rude command. This is really fascinating. If you look at the way the disciples normally address our Lord Jesus, it is Lord, Master, Teacher, some expression of respect and regard. Not here. And it just happens to be a command. I think what's happened is this thing's been festering in their mind all day long. What are we going to do about this crowd? And all of a sudden, the disciples come and they say, Jesus, it's obvious that you've got to send these people away. Just get rid of them and, and, and send them home. But, but it's not talking to Jesus as though he's who he is. And then Jesus, of course, turns it around and says, no, actually... You feed them. Boy, now the thing's right back on their, may I say, on their plate. <laughs> and, and they've got to deal with, with what Jesus has said to them. So, Jesus feeds the crowd, but he does it by the hands of the disciples. So he takes the, the, the loaves and the fish, he breaks them, and, and, and they then begin to distribute them. And uh, notice what it says. He, he made the, the crowd sit in an orderly arrangement. I think that would have been fun to see too. You know, get you know, a good year blimps and just kind of fly over this thing. But these people are neatly organized. This is no potential riot where people are rushing for food and whatever like you could imagine it might be after a long day without food. There's this orderly arrangement of the people and the disciples passing out this food among them. And it says, all of them ate, and John 6 says, as much as they wanted. <laughs> That's not Peter saying, don't take seconds. We don't have much. They're all eating exactly what they want. And when they're done, they are satisfied. I'll bet those were good fish. And I'll bet that was great bread. I can't imagine Jesus serving day-old bread. Can you? Good stuff. They're satisfied. Now, the surplus is 12 baskets full. 
I, I mean, this is no big thing, but, but my, my, my understanding of the way it's written is 12 baskets full of the broken pieces. Now, it's one thing, you know, if you've got this vision in your mind of, yuck, I wouldn't eat those 12, 12 baskets, you know, as though you've been picking up the crumbs like it's litter all around the grassland. <clears throat> it seems to me that what you're seeing here is Jesus breaks those pieces. There are 12 baskets of untouched, broken pieces. And the emphasis, therefore, is not only was everybody fully satisfied, but there was lots more to come had people wanted it. So anyway, there's a surplus. Here's the big thing, or at least something worth noting. Not one word said by way of interpretation or application. We're simply told the story and we move on to walking across the water. So let's look at 45 through 52. Jesus walks on the sea. Notice our text says Jesus compelled the disciples to get into the boat. Uh, you could see, for instance, when uh, in Acts 26, 11, that same word is used. It's where Paul is saying he sought to compel Christians to deny their Lord. This is not some gentle, if you guys feel like it, whenever you get around to it, get in the boat. It's get in the boat and move on. And, and the reason, of course, we know from John's gospel is this crowd is ready to make Jesus king by force. And I can see Peter saying, I'm with them. Can you not? I mean, the disciples would have thought this was the glory road. Let's get this thing on the road. Jesus compels them to get into the boat, go to the other side because of the enthusiasm, I believe, of the crowd. Jesus then dismisses the crowd and he himself goes off by himself to a mountain where he prays. We don't know what that prayer was, but take a guess. Take a guess. I would guess that Jesus, for instance, is, is thinking through the temptation when Satan says, all of these kingdoms are mine to give, and if you bow down and worship me, you can have them all. Israel's ready to give Jesus the kingdom on their terms. So Jesus may have well been praying for himself in the sense that he had a mission to fulfill. It's also possible, I think it's likely, that Jesus was praying for his disciples. Why did they have to be compelled to get in the boat? I think he's saying, Lord, help these guys to see things the way they really are. Then Jesus is now finished with his prayer. He looks out from the shore, out into the sea, and, and from what the whole uh, uh, parallel account says to us, they are in the middle of the sea fighting strong, contrary winds. Now, they've been out there a good while. Jesus sees them in trouble, it says, uh, some distance out. By the way, I don't know about three or four miles. i got to tell you that uh, three or four miles on the Sea of Galilee, late at night, boy, that's heat, powerful, good vision, I would say. It may be miraculous sight is all I'm saying. But he sees them, he knows exactly where they are, and he knows exactly what their needs are as well. So I say, I pick my words very carefully here. Jesus goes toward the disciples, walking on the water, 
intending to pass by. I'm coming back to this in the next frame, but this is, this is a big one. A lot of people approach this and read it as though Jesus wanted to miss the disciples, that he wanted to bypass them. Hey, folks, there's a lot easier ways to do that than walking on water, but we'll get to that in a second. And then here comes Jesus alongside passing by the boat, and, and the disciples look out and they see him. Isn't it interesting that their first impulse is, it's a ghost! They believed in ghosts. Obviously, you know, whether you ask them in a calm and quiet moment whether they did, I don't know. But when it came down to, here's this, this, this sort of phantom-like vision going on by, it was a ghost and they were scared to death. Jesus says to them, it is I, in effect, don't be afraid. And then, of course, we know they would invite Jesus into the boat. That's after Peter had his swim, but it's, it's coming in our text. Uh, Mark passes by the, the, the gurgling uh, words of, of uh, Peter and goes on. The disciples, we're told, are astonished. At what? At what? It doesn't say they're afraid. Now, Jesus has dealt with their fears by saying, it's me, don't be afraid. They're not afraid anymore. They're astonished because the wind and the waves have ceased. Jesus gets into the boat. Everything, the storm stops, apparently without a command on the part of our Lord. And if we read all the Gospels, immediately Jesus and his disciples end up at their destination. Now, if I understand the text correctly, they're blown off course. So now they're miraculously where they were supposed to be, and the disciples are amazed. Now, here's the thing that is unique about Mark. In the other Gospels what we see that, that deal with the walking on water, in the other Gospels, we see the fear of the disciples, we see the amazement of the disciples, and we even see in Matthew the worship, do we not? The worship of the other disciples when Jesus gets into the boat and all the winds and waves stop. And they say, surely you are the Son of God. Now, if we were to read the, the account of the, of the walking on water apart from Mark, we would go away saying, isn't this a wonderful story? Isn't it wonderful that the disciples recognized Jesus as the Son of God and worshipped him as such? Yes and no. You see, what Mark does is to show us what they didn't get. Not what they did get. What they didn't get. And, and I'm, I'm going to say this, and you may think this is kind of screwy, but I call their worship as described in Matthew Class B worship. They worship Jesus as the Son of God, but they did not worship Him seeing everything they should have seen. Had they seen it, they would have worshipped Him in an even fuller and more glorious way. So Mark focuses on what they don't get, not what they do. Now let's go to the bypass thing for just one minute. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Did Jesus mean to pass the disciples by? No. Number one, Jesus never did a miracle for his own benefit. You dare not look at this text and have Jesus say, it's been a long night, hard day, 
I think I'll just take a shortcut across the lake. Would you, I mean, really, would you ever expect Jesus to do that? And, and, And then cap it off with, I've had enough of the disciples for today. I'm just going to pass them by. You know, so Jesus is on the, the, the waterway freeway, and he just cruising on by, and oops, what do you know? Somebody saw him. Come on, folks. Jesus didn't purpose not to be seen so that they could see him. It says, Jesus, oh, well, back to John 6. Jesus, remember, raised the issue early about the feeding intentionally knowing what he was doing? Do you think Jesus didn't know what he was about to do here? Come on! The sovereign God doesn't know what he's going to do. And then it says he came to them walking on the sea. Folks, he loved his disciples. He loved the crowds. And he showed compassion by teaching and healing. Here are his disciples. They've been at hours against the wind, straining at the oars, and Jesus is just going to say, have a nice day, boys. You know, see you on the other side. Baloney. He cares about them. He came to them walking on the sea. In other words, how would Jesus get to the boat if he didn't walk on water? You ever think about that? Oh, I suppose he could have done some air movement or whatever, but walking on water was his way to get to the disciples, not his way to avoid the disciples. So, when you come to the word passing by, here's the key. Same word in the Septuagint, same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used. In Exodus 39, 19, 22, Exodus 34, you know what that text is? It's Jesus, it's our Lord, I'm sorry, it's it, it's God saying to Moses at his request, show me your glory, I will pass by. What do you think that means? It means he is purposely passing by to be seen, does it not? To reveal himself? There it is, folks. Please, don't, don't, don't go somewhere else and see Jesus is trying to avoid the disciples. Other texts I put down. He gets with them in the boat, and they are amazed. And this, the disciples, I think, I think their amazement is unbelief. Their amazement is a modified kind of unbelief, and that's why they'll be rebuked for it, and especially in chapter 8. So, the disciples' astonishment, not fear, at what God has done is, is the unbelief as the result of hardened hearts. That's what our text says. Not a, none of the other texts focus on it here. Mark does. Unbelief leads to amazement. I'm going to stop and sermonize for just a second. Isn't it a sad thing that Christians are amazed when God does something? That's God-like. Isn't it amazing and sad that we're saying, well, what do you know? God acted like God. That's no commendation to be amazed, I think, at what God does. They failed to connect the dots between the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. That is exactly what our text says. They did not, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. Oh, by the way, the word Loaves here is the same word that's going to be used in Exodus chapter 16 of God providing bread 
for the Israelites in the wilderness by the hand of Moses. So, let's think about uh, Mark chapter 8 for one second, can we? This is really the introduction. Matthew will pick up on the theme of their hardened hearts and their failure to connect dots. But Mark introduces it here in chapter 6. He comes back to it in Mark chapter 8. Look at it. Mark chapter 8, you have the feeding of the 4,000. Now, any reading that I do of Mark uh, 6 and the feeding of the 5,000 and Mark 8 and feeding of the 4,000, it is very similar. Is it any wonder that liberal scholars, I hope no conservatives, well, I, I don't even want to go down that trail. Uh, is it, you know, it, it is so similar that some scholars would say it's the same event. I mean, look how similar these are. You know, the numbers got mixed up a little bit, but it's just a rerun of the feeding of the 5,000. It is a rerun, but it's a different time and a different group of people, and I'll deal with that when we get to chapter 8. My point is, Jesus does virtually the same thing, and the disciples have the same clueless response after having been through the feeding of the 5,000. It's like, what do we do now? Well, I could suggest a few things. Count the loaves. Anyway, I'm getting excited and I've got to calm down. The Pharisees, after the feeding of the 4,000, the Pharisees seek a sign from Jesus. Then the disciples are back in the boat and Jesus says to them, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. <laughs> oh, the way these guys connect the dots is just like me. They say to themselves, Leaven. Let's see, leaven connects to bread. And bread connects to, oh, good grief, who brought the loaves? We only have one in the boat. Well, by the statistics I figure out, that means about a thousand people can be fed. Right? Jesus in a boat with one loaf? Oh, does it come to that? You could have a boatload of bread. And Jesus says to them, how come you don't see the connection? Don't you remember when I fed the 5,000? How much was left over? Don't you remember I just fed the 4,000? How much is left over? What is wrong with you guys? That somehow you're thinking about who brought the bread rather than who it is who provides it. It's just unbelievable. Well, anyway, Mark is warming us up for what is yet to come. I'm, I was tempted. I was seriously tempted to blow this message out several fold and could easily do so. But I decided that Mark chose to wait, and so will I, until chapter 8, that is. So what dots do the disciples fail to connect? Folks, the people of Israel were in the wilderness, and they didn't have bread, and it was almost Passover. And year after year, they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the feast celebrating the provision of God for his people in the wilderness. Even the unbelieving people who left Jesus made the connection between the bread that Jesus provided and Moses. And the implications, at least some of them, that Jesus must be this one that Moses spoke about. Even they got that much. Isn't it interesting? Unbelievers sometimes grasp more than Christians 
Because unbelievers aren't compelled to believe it. They just see it for what it is. So in John 6, unbelievers connect Jesus with the prophet. Now, I wish I had time to go through this. I've told you this before. My thesis in seminary was the Exodus motif in Isaiah 40 through 55. Dr. Walke would have loved it if I'd done the Exodus motif in the prophets. Uh, he talked, he conned. Uh, another guy, Ron Allen, into doing the Exodus motif in the Minor Prophets. And that was a doctoral dissertation. My point is that all through the Old Testament, this theme of creation and the Exodus is played out so that what you see in Genesis with the creation of this world, you now see in Isaiah and the prophets, and God is saying, I created the old creation. You haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to create a new creation that's going to come about. So the one dot, if you would, is connected to the other dot. Is it any wonder then that our Lord Jesus is, is portrayed in the miracle of the creating of, of wine out of water as a creator? Is it any wonder to us that that would happen? Dots are being connected. John chapter 1. John tells us at the very beginning of his gospel that Jesus is the creator. Whew. Okay, so now we get to the Exodus. You see the Old Testament uh, story of the Exodus concluding in chapter 14 and the praise of the Israelites coming about in Exodus chapter 15. And you remember all that went with that. And, and uh, God is saying, you know what? You haven't seen anything yet. Now, this is not really an exaggeration, but I'm not going to work too hard to prove all my points. But he basically says this. In the Exodus, I made a desert path through the midst of the sea, and you walked on it. Now I think I'll make a sea in the midst of the desert. I'll turn the whole land into a beautiful place of bounty. God takes away the water, makes it dry. God takes away the dry and makes it wet. A new creation. It's all the way through. Uh, let's just look at a couple of texts. When it says that they were sheep without a shepherd, in our text, that, that comes from the words of Moses in, uh, in uh, the book of Numbers, when he is looking at the fact that God is going to lead the Israelites into the promised land without him. And he says, Lord, somebody needs to take my place so that these people will not be a, the sheep without a shepherd. So Joshua, in a sense, is the uh, substitute shepherd. The big shepherd is Jesus, the Exodus. Uh, and you'll see those other texts. Psalm 77, you see again a picture of our Lord uh, with respect to the Exodus. But this is an interesting one. One more chapter over, Psalm 78. When it's talking about Israel and its unbelief, notice what the, what the words of the people are in their unbelief. Is God able to set a table before us in the wilderness? That's their question. Can God prepare a table in the midst of the wilderness? What do you think we're seeing here? Now, obviously, God did provide bread for them in the wilderness. But isn't this Jesus setting the table in the wilderness? Don't we, shouldn't we see some connection and say, wow, what do you know? This connects to this. Now, if that is true, oh, I got to uh, let me read you a couple texts in, in Isaiah just to make my point. Isaiah chapter 40, 43. 
Look at those first uh, verses. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters. That's an interesting choice of words. Interesting symbol, is it not? By the way, they passed through the waters at the Red Sea. They passed through the waters at the crossing of the Jordan. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers. Hmm. That sounds familiar. They will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will they burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt, Egypt, as your ransom. Look at verse 16. I'll go back to verse 15. I am the Lord your, uh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and will not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Folks, is that not connecting the dots? Is that not saying that what our Lord Jesus Christ is going to do is a fulfillment of that which was a prototype in the Old Testament and, pro and, and prophesied of what would happen in the New? So, when you come to Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, at the transfiguration, which, by the way, is the next thing Luke will do. When you come... Uh, to, to, to the, the, the transfiguration, or almost the next thing after the great confession. When you come to the, to the glorification of our Lord, it says that Jesus spoke with Moses and Elijah concerning his, got any marginal notes out there? Exodus. Exodus. Why are we surprised? Why are we surprised with all this data from the scriptures that this would be an Exodus scene? So, all right, here's what I, the way I see it. It seems to me, my friends, that if you have now seen Jesus as the one greater than Moses, the great bread provider, when you are out in the middle of the sea, same word, by the way, in the Septuagint, it goes back to uh, the, the sea that was parted, and you're in trouble should it be amazing to you that the God of the Exodus would walk on water to get there? Think about it. Is that really amazing? Once you grant who Jesus is, is that really an amazing wonder? And that's why he rebukes it. He said, you should see the connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and this water incident. Jesus fed the, 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 the masses in the wilderness and he parted a river, a, a dry spot, a path through the, through the sea. Why are we surprised when God acts like God? When the God of the New Testament that's revealed in the New Testament acts like the God of the Old? Why are we surprised or amazed? And that's why I think the rebuke. Okay. 
God expects us to connect dots. God expects us to connect dots and rebukes us when we don't. Because failing to connect dots may well be the result of hard hearts who just don't see the connection between what God has done and what God is doing. Matthew 23, I never thought of this text in exactly this, but remember Jesus says you are straining at gnats and swallowing camels? The camels are the connection of the dots. Here they are frittering away in the details of little trivial things, but they don't get the big point, which is all the dots connected. Examples of connecting the dots. Deuteronomy is a connect the dots book. It starts with a review of Israel's history, how God has been faithful and how Israel has sinned. And it leads to God's instructions for how Israel ought to behave when they get into the land. That's why the law is repeated in Deuteronomy, even though it's been given in Exodus chapter 20. He is connecting the dots between what was and what will be. Uh, look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. Remember Nehemiah's prayer? Nehemiah looks at the, at, the, at the place where the nation finds themselves in their unbelief. He traces all of Israel's history and he says, Oh my goodness, we're doing it again. And all he can do is plead for grace because that is the way God has dealt with Israel in the past. Daniel chapter 9, same thing. By the way, Daniel connected the dots. Daniel read from Jeremiah that there was going to be 70 years of captivity. And lo and behold, he looks at his calendar and says, well, what do you know? 70 years is coming up. 70? 70? By George, I think I'll start praying for God to do what he promised to do after 70 years. Connect the dots. Psalm 78 looks at all of Israel's history. Connect the dots. Luke chapter 24. Jesus now takes his disciples and from Moses and the prophets, he goes all the way through scripture connecting the dots to prove that Messiah was to suffer and die. Acts chapter 2. Peter's connecting the dots of all these things and saying it's impossible for the Son of God to be held by death. Uh... Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Remember his sermon? He starts at the beginning, traces Israel's history, and connects the dots and says, you know what? You guys are out. You're just as bad as they were. And he calls them to repentance. Acts chapter 13 and other places. What does Paul do when he goes to the synagogue? Paul goes to the synagogue and he basically says, oh, let's look at the Old Testament. And I suspect he started at Genesis and he goes all the way through and he says, here's what Messiah is going to be like. Genesis chapter 3. And he goes to each place, Leviticus, the lamb and whatever, and the Passover lamb. And he says, look at all of these things. I wonder who Messiah is. Ta-da! Jesus. He's the ultimate consummate dot. By the way, the word true. I am the true vine that's used in the Gospel of John, it's saying, in effect, I am the ultimate fulfillment of what all of those things foretold. All those things shadowed. That's me. I don't know about you, but I call that dot connecting. Just as should have happened here. 
The dots may be, uh, connect, uh, cannot be connected without reading, teaching, and studying God's Word, get this, persistently, sequentially, in large doses. Folks, daily bread is great, but it isn't enough. It is not enough. If you want to read daily bread, have at it. But you better be deep and long in Scripture. If you want to see dots connected, you better go and stay there a good while. It requires a sense of the whole of Scripture. You have to, in order to connect the dots, you've got to understand the whole Bible. What's interesting is with New Tribes Mission, when they would go into a, a, a village where people had never heard about Jesus, you know where they started? Genesis. Why? Because you have to connect the dots. And then you get to Jesus. Connecting the dots is sequential in the Bible. Watch this. Sequential. Luke 24. Jesus starts with Moses and the prophets and works through the Bible to get to where he is. Every time, Stephen's sermon, wherever it is, Nehemiah 9, Daniel chapter 9, they start at the beginning and they end at the end. You know what that says to me? We dare not focus on one part of the Bible. If we're going to connect dots, we've got to know it all. And, look at my point, F. Gentile believers are expected to know the Old Testament. Look at the books in the New Testament written to Gentiles. And you will see references to the Old Testament, like uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, don't, don't muzzle the ox. 1 Corinthians 10, the rock that followed them was Christ. You know what Paul's saying to those Jew, uh, Gentile believers? You won't understand this unless you understand the Old Testament and connect the dots. Oh, they're there. The epistles are there to help us connect the dots. But you better not forget the starting point, which is back at the beginning. Expository preaching should connect the dots. Any sermon that doesn't connect the dots puts you in the sense of God's plan and purpose for what he is about in this world. Falls short, in my opinion, of a good sermon, and certainly falls short of being what we would call an expository sermon. We need to develop our ability to think through the Bible in terms of its message. We need to think through the argument of a book. We need to think through the argument of the book. Or we do not understand the Bible as we should. Now, some of you are going to look at this point, Jay, and you're going to say, Oh, man, now what he's saying is fooey on all the, uh, on all the topical sermons and, and whatever. You know, it's only expository preaching. Well, I'll tell you what, folks. There ought to be a lot of that. But great topical sermons connect dots. Think about that. When you look at Jesus' words in Luke 24, the topic is the suffering of Messiah. It's a topical message, but it's a dot connector. And that's the way good sermons ought to go. Okay, uh, boy, if you had time, and you don't, boy, you're going to walk out of me in about two seconds here. Look at the applications. I'll come back to this. Think about the, 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 the way in which people connect the dots by way of application. I'm going to give you just one, Abraham. Abraham was an old coot. And his wife was old and cootie too. And God says, you're going to have a baby. And it says, Abraham believed in God and trusted in him and was not weak in faith. Romans chapter 4. 
when it comes to the sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham connected the dots. God said, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham reasoned, connecting those dots. And he said, you know what? Sarah and I were dead with respect to, to having children. And what do you know? God gave us life in death. And so he reasoned that if he were to sacrifice that son, God would raise him from the dead. That is connecting the dots. And my friend, I think that's one of the weakest things that we do. And one of the things that I have against, oh, I'll just say it, wimpy preaching, is wimpy preaching does all your thinking for you. And I don't believe that's right. Good preaching ought to leave you scratching your head asking questions and going back to the text. And great application ought not be the preacher giving you three points, a poem, and a little illustration. Here's how you apply this text. My friend, we don't know every way in which God's going to bring application. But if we understand the dots and how they connect, then when we see our life, when we see things falling apart, what we say to ourselves is, I serve a God who connects dots. And that includes the dots of my life. If something goes wrong in my life, I say, God is the dot connector. By the way, there's only one way to believe in a dot connecting God. That's to believe in a sovereign God. A sovereign God knows what he is about and he brings it to pass. If we serve a sovereign God, folks, your dots are his dots. And they're going where God wants us to go. I don't know, there may be somebody here that hasn't yet connected the dots about what Jesus is all about. The Bible's clear. He created man. Man sinned. Death came. All through the Old Testament, man tried like crazy to live up to God's standards, and it didn't work. But the Old Testament spoke of one who was coming, the Lord Jesus, who would die in the sinner's place who would give his righteousness for their unrighteousness, who would bear the penalty for their sins. That's the Jesus that we find in the New Testament. And it's going to happen in Mark like it does in all the other Gospels. And it's only in him that you will have salvation. And God will connect the dots between lost men and heaven. Father, thank you for this text. Help us to to teach in a way that connects the dots, to study in a way that connects the dots. Help us to live in a way that sees the truth of your word as pertinent and bearing upon everything we do in life. In Jesus' name, amen.